Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, space monkeys. Welcome to another episode of Cycling in Alignment. You have returned just like the moon and the sun and all the things that are eternal. Today's discussion is with Czech Institute professional and staff member Matt Walden. Matt is from the Jolly UK, and he has graced me with some time on the podcast to have a wonderful conversation about a great many things, sharing his wealth of knowledge. Matt was my instructor in the latest course I have taken in the Czech Academy curriculum. That's IMS3, Integrated Movement Specialist Level 3. And we talk about a lot of things in that course, including lumbo-pelvic dysfunction and challenges. I learned a lot, and it was very useful. But I also got to know Matt quite a bit better. I've had various instructors in my Czech Institute journey, but had not worked with Matt yet. And I realized he's quite a smart guy. He's got a wealth of experience. He's trained as an osteopath and discovered Paul Czech around 1999 or 2000. And he details a bit about what drew him into the Czech program and Paul Czech's teachings and philosophies. And that's a good question to answer because a lot of people ask me why I'm studying Paul Czech so much. And they also kind of want to know who Paul Czech is. And that's a difficult question for me to answer because Paul encompasses so many things. So I asked Matt that same question and he kind of unpacks it. How do you define Paul Czech? And also what drew Matt into his work, his system of teaching? Matt and I talk about Punjabi's model. We unpack quite a bit of things about barefoot athlete function and the biomechanics of how barefoot movement, walking and running and other activities influences recruitment patterns up the chain and the ramifications of using shoes with heel drop or a lot of padding. Um, Matt talks about maximalist shoes. That's the dreaded hokas, which you've heard me bash on my podcast many times in the past. We also get into some specific details about cycling shoes and what they do to human function, neuromuscular recruitment patterns, etc. And we get into a bit of a wormhole about the windless mechanism and the stabilization of the, the foot and ankle joint as a result of that mechanism. So hopefully you'll find all that stuff interesting. It, we definitely talk in a good bit of anatomical detail, and I hope that's not lost on my audience. I don't think it will be. Most of you are pretty well versed in those terms. So, but if you get super confused, send me a question on the gram, drop it into the old comments, and I'll do my best to check it out and answer it. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Matt Walden. Gratitude. Uh, Matt Walden, thank you so much for making time today to come and chat with me on cycling and alignment. I really appreciate you coming aboard to talk to us and speak with our audience. How are you doing today? That's a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. I'm doing well. Thank you. Very well. Yeah. How about you? I'm great. I'm great. Yeah. As you said, busy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, Every time I, I finish a course, like uh, just recently you, you taught my IMS3 course in San Diego, that's uh, Integrated Movement Specialist Level 3, for those who don't know, at the Czech Institute. And, and uh, unfortunately, Matt wasn't able to be there in person, so we did a, 
We did a virtual course, even though the students were there in person, which was great and essential because we do so many assessments uh, on human bodies and and also just having the class environment, interacting yeah. with humans is nice. And uh, we had Ashley and Carl there as well to assist, and that was great. Mm. But I came back from that class and just as always, it seems like every time I kind of reach a new, we'll say, um, checkpoint in my professional career or, or accomplish something like that or, or complete something like that. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got more tools to work with and now maybe I'll have a better understanding. And I sort of have this anticipation that things are going to relax a little bit. Yeah. And then the universe always seems to ask more of me and just, <laughs> and, and so I'm always just sort of barely above water, uh, in terms of workload and yeah. Anyways, yeah, yeah. What, yeah. what can you do? You just manage the things, right? Well, this is the thing, you know, they, they say that you, you find what you look for, right? And so, um, you know, when, you, when you're suddenly made aware of, of new, uh, you know, conditions or new ways of looking at the human body or whatever, then typically you start seeing that. And then suddenly, you know, you've got a whole new layer of complexity that you, you need to work with and address. And yeah, uh, yeah it's, 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 it's a, an ongoing, never-ending <laughs> process. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's kind of what makes it that's what makes it so much fun. Um, but also being cautious not to apply, you know, there's the old chiropractor model or, or colloquialism that's, you know, when you've got a hammer in your toolbox, everything looks like a nail. So I try really hard not to, not to view things only through that new lens. Um, not that, not IMS is like, it'd be like having, you know, 50 new tools in the toolbox at least. Um, mm. so the challenge there is knowing which tool to apply in which occasion, but it still does influence the lens through which you see clients. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's, that's constantly a challenge for me as well. It's like, okay, I'm thinking about lumbopelvic, you know, dysfunction and problems <laughs> and spinal pathologies and stuff when I see a client now. And that's great. So, anyway, you know, this is this is one of the things that appealed to me. Uh, I, I don't know if we're going to talk about it in any instance, but but obviously my background is in osteopathy, and and so, you know, I followed that standard model of of someone coming in with a condition with you know uh whatever symptoms they've got and you literally have 30 minutes to assess them you know meet them greet them get down mm -hmm. the case history and, and then you're, you're looking to find something to explain their pain and what i like about the, the the check approach is to me it feels a little bit more honest from the perspective that you know you're doing quite a comprehensive assessment before you're even suggesting to them what's going on so you're you know you're taking all of these measurements mm -hmm. watching how looking at their nutritional and uh you know sort of organ stresses and this kind of thing uh, and then you, when you've got all that information then you stop and you look at it and say okay so what are the patterns here what are the things i can pick out and so rather than you trying to find some kind of solution within 30 minutes which kind of means you default to things you know about um right. the, the the thing with the, the, the a more comprehensive assessment is that you know, you're not particularly looking for anything. You're really looking to assess the individual as, as comprehensively as you can. Once you've got all of those assessment findings, then you look and say, okay, so what do I think is going on here? And mm -hmm. so for me, it feels like there's less bias. So there's always going to be bias in what, what you do, of mm -hmm. course. But I think there's less bias doing it that way than the standard kind of medical model, whether you're a doctor or a chiropractor or quite time-constrained. And so you have to try and find an explanation in a brief period of time, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so, so, so with this, we just allow ourselves a little more time, a little more comprehensive, uh, 
range of assessments and then look for patterns within that data. Mm. That's interesting. It makes me, it, it kind of highlights in my mind the tension between, you know, from a shamanic perspective, you, you try to be the hollow bone, right? Yeah. You're, you clear yourself so that you can approach a client with that open, neutral mind. You can look at them with um, a really unbiased perspective or uh, <clears throat> you might say like a, a neutral eye. Mm-hmm. And you just feel and see what what comes to you, and then that's how you help them best. But then, but then on the other hand, we have to draw from our experience. We have to draw from our intuition based on our experience with previous clients, right? Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's a real tension there. And as a cycling coach, I'm someone who I'm constantly trying to view my clients with a fresh, from a fresh perspective. Because you know, when you work with a client for a season or two, a few years. I'm sure you've seen this with athletes you've worked with as well. Like you kind of feel like, yeah, I know that person a little bit. I know their history. I know their patterns. I know kind of, I think the limit there is if you sort of start to think, well, I know what the person's capable of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And man, that can be both good and bad, right? Because you can really sort of pigeonhole someone or you can put them in a box that really they're trying to break out of. Yes. Yes. And, And so we have to be careful as coaches or you know, health practitioners to really not, it's that there's that tension, right? I mean, do you have any more yeah. thoughts on how to solve that? That's, that's really everything, isn't it? To a degree. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think this is part of the reason that, you know, if we start out we're with, with the check system, the model we use is this one, two, three, four model, isn't it? So we, we talk about the one love, trying to identify someone's love, their legacy, their passion, mm-hmm. their life's purpose, which, which obviously is a challenge. Um, and I think part of the reason it's a challenge is because, one perception of your life's purpose is the idea that it's a static destination. You know, let's say you, let's say you want to, uh, you know, save the rainforest, right? And that, that's your life's passion. So mm-hmm. you say, that's my, I want to save the rainforest. But you might get five years down the line and think, actually, you know what? The rainforest is doing pretty good. And now my life's got no meaning, right? right. <laughs> well, I'm ready to die, right? You know, and it's like people don't want to commit to that because what if I achieve it mm-hmm. in the years and then what happens then i've got nothing to live for right so i i think that the idea of a legacy is a dynamic thing you know and that we start out with just like traveling you know because we often use the term destiny as another kind of way legacy so destiny obviously relates very closely to the concept of a destination and um so we could start out with a destination that we want to visit uh, and, you know, maybe our, our life's goal is to, to walk from, from wherever to wherever, let's say, you know, point A to point B, I want to get to New York, right? Or I'm going to swim there, whatever it is, <laughs> but I've got to get to New York. I've got to see New York before I die, right? So that's my destination, my destiny. Right. Uh, you might get halfway there and you go, well, actually, you know what? You know, maybe San Diego is a good place to go, or maybe I want to go to South America or Australia or, you know, the Far East. And, and that's okay as well. But the, the point is, is, if you don't know where you're going, then any path will get you there. You know, yeah. and in fact, anywhere, right? Because, well, that, that, maybe that's a little bit of a negative way of saying it. But, but if you don't know where you're going, then, then you're not likely to make the same kind of progress that you will. It's like, kind of like you've got to commit to a diagnosis as well. You commit to a diagnosis. You start treating someone uh, based on that diagnosis, or you might say assessment of them. Um, mm-hmm. And if they do badly with that, 
that diagnosis and, and the supposed uh, approaches you should take, well, then you have to redivert. Maybe it's a different destination they need to go to. Maybe it's a different diagnosis, right? Yeah. So it's having that flexibility of mind and, and that awareness up front that, uh, you know, it, you're totally within your, your rights, obviously, to, to, to change your mind, right? And, um, and to, to create a new focus. But, but a focus is important. Otherwise, we can just drift. And yeah. Uh, yeah. one of our unique capabilities as human beings is to be able to project ourselves forwards in time and to say, this is where I'd like to be in a year, or this is where I'd like to be in five years, or by the end of my life, I want to have achieved this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. You know, most, most other creatures don't really have yeah. that capability. Right. Foxes don't think about life goals, right? Yeah. 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 It's, um, you know, to tie back to coaching, you know, you, you assess an athlete for their physiological parameters. Like you're, you're looking at their anaerobic capacity or their aerobic capacity. And you're kind of evaluating like how do their current expressions of their fitness manifest versus weighing that against the demands of their event. If they want to do a road race or a time trial and cycling or a mountain bike race, those are all, those all require different physiological characteristics. And so having that goal is what that sets that sets the athlete i say i like to say on the trajectory towards that that end point at least for us within a season but yeah. then we constantly have to evaluate them as coaches and say okay i diagnosed we don't like to use that word right um <laughs> i assessed my athlete uh don't do not diagnose or prescribe my wife says that to me all the time we don't diagnose or prescribe um i assess my athlete to have these characteristics and so we applied this training stimulus to try to enhance those or, you know, up, upregulate those, spin them up. Yeah. But then after a few months, you can see like, Hmm, this isn't quite working the way that I thought it was. They're not, they're not getting better in the way we, we hoped. So Mm -hmm. then you have to adjust your assessment as a, as a coach, as a practitioner, right. And see, cause it's always about results. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, if you if you don't commit to a certain direction, then you you don't know uh, you know whether or not it's helping or or uh, yeah. hindering. Yeah. Uh, so, and you know, back to the the traveling analogy, you could be on the way to New York, but then you realize it's 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 hindering your progression, and it's you know maybe the environment's changed there, or the people you wanted to meet there, or the things you wanted to see have gone. Yeah. Right? You want to in towns? Oh, they've gone. Right. So maybe I don't want to go there anymore. You know that that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I think it's it's maintaining that flexibility of mind and the, the you know the creativity that we have naturally have to say, well, yeah, you know, we 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 need the structure, which is more on the left hemisphere, and we we need to set ourselves parameters. The mind really doesn't do well if it doesn't have parameters. Um, and then within that, we need to have the flexibility to say, but I can always change direction if I need to, mm. which is kind of the idea of you know self-will and so on but it's also kind of yin and yang um so there's the uh, i often talk about the yin and yang of time management so we can structure our day or we can structure our week or you know as you're alluding to with athletes uh, you, you often would do a macro cycle so a, a, a full season right mm-hmm. um uh, so one year plan and um so there's a yang element to that because what you're doing is you're creating structure so that's what yang is about it's creating structure and some rigidity but you also need the fluidity that if something goes wrong, if they get a little injury or a niggle or they have a bike crash or whatever it might be, you've got to have the in, the ability and the flexibility of mind, the flexibility within the program. Say, okay, so maybe we need to adjust the way we've laid this out. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I think with business executives and, and any of us that are trying to be uh, efficient with our time, often there's a real yang focus to time management, right? 9 a.m., this meeting, yeah. that meeting, blah, 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 right? But then suddenly the kid's sick and you need to go to school to pick them up or, you know, there's a there's an accident on the freeway or whatever. And, and now if you don't have flexibility of mind, then it creates massive stress for you. So you end up with high blood pressure or you know, heart attacks, you know, ultimately. And, and that's, that's because you're too young in the way you're seeing things. So, so, you know, it wasn't the actual uh, incident itself, let's say, you know, a crash on the freeway or, or, or having to go to pick up the kids up from school, but it's the way you're perceiving it. And mm-hmm. you need to maintain both the rigidity where you can, because that gives you the structure like we talked about, but you also need to have that capacity to flow with events that emerge in your environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the best athletes and, and the people that are most successful tend to have a good mix of both. Yeah. Um, and they probably get unwell, right? Yeah. 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 There's a saying that definitely applies to that in, in road racing in particular. <clears throat> it's, um, you know, you have got a team of eight, maybe 10 riders who sit down and they say, okay, what are we doing today, guys? How are we going to tackle this road race? Mm-hmm. But there's 120, 140, 180 people in the Peloton. So yeah, it's yeah. like, it's its own entity. It's its own organic flowing thing. And, and, you know, you sit down with your director and you decide we're going to do this. We're going to attack in this climb, or we're going to push the pace in this crosswind section. We're going to work for this rider because we anticipate that at the finish, uh, it'll play to his strengths or her strengths, right. right? But then you get out there and everything goes completely sideways because two other teams decide to apply some random tactics that you never thought were possible. Even, right. even in a sport that's been practiced 100 years, that happens all the time somehow. Or yeah. the weather's just atrocious and everybody's flatting and crashing all over the place like uh, in Perry Rebe that happened just a few weeks ago or just a few days ago. Yeah, yeah. And, so it's like that. I think it was Mike Tyson who said, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> and so that's the perfect illustration. Like you were saying of that, that tension between that young yang, like tendency yes. to cleave things and be so rigid and be so like, yeah, but, but four o'clock, you know, four o'clock mm-hmm. has to happen or I have to ride for an hour and a half today and I have to do my intervals. Mm-hmm. Otherwise mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, the workout was a failure. I didn't make progress or I didn't, I'm going to be behind right? Yeah. Versus, yeah. well, I've got three flat tires and got hit by a car. So it's time to go home and, <laughs> you know, yeah. relax a little bit and pick myself back together and put my bike back together. And maybe tomorrow that stuff will happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. And it's true. I think of so many elements of life. It's like, you know, if you, if your muscles uh, are, are too yin and they're too saggy, right? They don't, they don't mm-hmm. have the capacity to, to hold the joints together effectively and so on. If they're too yang, they're, then they're too they're too tight. You're going to strain the muscle. You're not going to have the range of motion to swing your leg through when you're running or, or striking a football or or whatever it might be. You know, so yeah. so the the point is that there's some kind of balance that always has to be achieved between the two extremes, and and the ability to to go into either extreme uh, is is what gives you that kind of uh, flexibility to flow with the challenges of life. Mm. But, but if you're dominated by one or the other, then it can be problematic, I think, right? Yeah. Like, like we, for some reason, in endurance sports or in sports in general, I think we tend to glorify the flexible athlete. Like, oh, you're so lucky. You can touch, you know, you can do a forward bend and touch your palms flat to the floor kind of thing. And I have to explain right. to people all the time, that's not really desirable. Like, how, yeah. how do you, you can't control that force 
if your fascial system is so loose, it's so lax mm-hmm. that yeah. you that you can't direct force because then it ha- it's just like the road. It's just like the trying to get to New York, but not really knowing which direction New York is, I guess it'd be kind of the analogy. Like you don't, you don't have a way to, to deliver that force in a meaningful way, whether it's throwing a football or pedaling a bike or punching someone in the face. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can have really yeah. strong muscles, but without the direction, it's just haphazard. Right. And it's going to apply, obviously increased stress to the joints. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, this is one of the things that I think has changed in, in sports medicine over the last 20 years or so. Was I remember reading a paper in 1999. It was the first time I'd ever seen anyone suggest that tight muscles might be beneficial. Mm. Um, and and it, was, it was looking, I believe, if I recall, it was looking at ankle sprain. It was suggesting that you know, having tight calves and, and, and tight shin musculature and so on could be protective against ankle sprain. And they were, they were giving the example, because what they were saying is most most athletes are quite tight in their muscles right um and so but they're saying is that an adaptive thing and mm. actually are you more efficient when you're tighter because you're able to recall quicker recall off connective tissues rather than contract it having to contract the whole time you know is the increased tension actually stabilizing the joints better so you don't have to over mm. for stability and so on and so forth and then there was a research study that I saw around 2004, which was uh, here in the UK with the, the, the soccer players here in the, in the premiership. So the top, top teams in the UK. And they, they looked at hamstring strain because it was the, the, the sort of primary injury um, that was causing time out of the sport, like with many sports. Um, and they, they had assumed that the players that were tightest were going to be the ones that are constantly getting injured. So what they did was they went around all of the clubs at the beginning of the season or in the preseason to assess tightness in the hamstrings and um then they watched and waited to see what happened across the next season and they were really surprised to find that the players with the tightest hamstrings got the least injuries Mm. Um, and you know so you could see uh in the discussion that was being presented at this conference people saying well you know so so how how do we reconcile that information and of course there's lots of ways you can do that but one of the one of the things that um we know through uh, study of, of strength conditioning is that when you when you have a, a stronger muscle, you not only have um, bigger sarcomeres, but you have so that's hypertrophy, right? Right. It's bigger, but you also have more sarcomeres, so you can get hypertrophy in the muscles in condition. And initially, that used to be quite a controversial idea. It was just the idea was that um, you know hyper hyperplasia which is increasing number of muscle fibers as opposed to making them bigger was mm-hmm. something that only ever been shown in animal studies, but actually now it's been confirmed because we're animals as well. Right. So, so it's not that surprising that we also can induce hyperplasia. Um, but so, so the point is, is that then you've got not only more muscle fibers within a given muscle, but you've got bigger muscle fibers and muscle fibers themselves, uh, of course, are the contractile elements, but between the muscle fiber, or I should say between the sarcomeres, which are the, the sort of contractile components within the fiber, between each of those, you've got what are called series elastic components, which are, uh, as they describe really, they're in series, so they're, they're, they're one after the other in, down the length of the muscle. And they're elastic, but they kind of function like springs. And so what that means is that you know, if you've got more sarcomeres because you've uh, undergone hyperplasia because you've trained harder or done, done some strength conditioning or whatever, 
well then you've got more more springs than the other athlete that hasn't done that training okay mm -hmm. so you, it's harder to pull that muscle apart because you've got more springs in it or maybe if you've trained you've got hypertrophy well now you've got bigger springs so the bigger springs are harder to pull apart than the smaller springs so so you know you've got that element and it's not just series elastic components there's also parallel elastic components which go down the side of the sarcomeres so there's all of these things that that can contribute and then in addition to that you've got things like um, differential recruitment of muscle fibers so you've got someone who's got let's say 100 muscle fibers in a given uh, cross section of muscle um well they can you know switch 20 on and rest 80 and then switch another 20 on and rest a different 80 and so on and so forth with each step they take or each revolution of, of the cycle that they, they they take but if you've got someone who's trained and they've got 150 fibers well now they've got more capacity to rest fibers and to generate more power with each stroke or with each step or whatever it might be so you can see that this is, it shouldn't really be that surprising that a stiffer muscle for a sports person who's trying to generate power repetitively is actually a beneficial thing mm -hmm. you know um so you know back to your original point that maybe flexibility in that instance is is not so desirable right mm. so, right but right. it depends depends why you have the flexibility and how you know how you've trained yourself whether that's because obviously there's another way of looking at it which is well you know gymnasts are very strong but they're also very flexible dancers right. very strong. so again there's there's this whole concept of, of the said principle specific adaptation to impose demands mm -hmm. and then you know allowing or putting the right stresses on the body to allow that individual to perform in the environment they need to perform in but yeah. um yeah so so it's yeah it's always uh, the, the nice thing about it is that you well i think when you're learning all this stuff initially you know like you should stretch before sports and that kind of thing you know you just accept it it's the accepted wisdom these are people that know more than you they, they've written textbooks or whatever and then suddenly a paper comes out that questions that and then another paper and then a, another presentation mm -hmm. and, and then you're like oh okay so this is a different way to look at it and i think mm -hmm. in my experience throughout my career is that you know, often some of some of what you're told is accurate from from your original training, but bit by bit you start to build a more and more accurate picture, and you can discard some of the stuff that's just hearsay, um, and uh, and start to move closer towards the truth, which is which is of course what we're all trying to do, right? Right, right, yeah, hearsay or just regurgitated, mm -hmm. recycled. You know, like, oh, the perfect example is you should stretch before you work out because it prevents injury. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or should I injury is another one, isn't it? That's, that's what we yes. the right the expert said so. It turns out the experts just, you know, made it up because it seemed sensible if you've got heat when you strain something or sprain something, yep. then maybe we should try and counteract that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, same with uh, Tylenol and fevers, right? It's, you know, people are finding that, well, actually, it's better to let the fever ride if you can, because the fever is you know, inhibiting bacterial growth and facilitating immune function. So yep. why would you want to bring it down, you know? Um, so anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Agreed. I, uh, this brings me back to a, a really fundamental principle that I keep returning to over and over in my life. When I think about these types of problems, like someone has a fever, they take Tylenol to reduce the fever. Mm -hmm. There are two this is how I think about it. There are two fundamental human errors that are being made there. One is that there's this hubris to humanity to think that we can outsmart nature, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's a mistake that's made over and over and over again. We just do it 
whether we're trying to engineer an impossible burger, whether we're trying to clone a sheep, mm. think that a fever is bad, mm. you know, like the fever is a natural, it's the body's response to infection or inflammation. Mm. It's, it's there for a reason. Like these machines, these, you know, to greatly reduce things, to call our body a biomechanical machine, because it's so much more than that. But these biological spacesuits are, I mean, they're so infinitely complex. And for us to think that we understand these mechanisms, and Paul talks about that in his book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, has that analogy with the pool table, right? Mm. And he talks about how the body is a cybernetic organism. It's a system of systems. Mm -hmm. And so when you take, you know, magnesium, like one mm. form of magnesium, expecting to effectively, we're, we're kind of thinking very simplistically, and we're, we're trying to push on a lever in this system of systems to get a response. But mm. that's like adding one pool ball to a pile of 10,000 pool balls and expecting a net result, you know, expecting eight of them to go shooting out or change yeah. color or I don't know what, I, that's a bad analogy, but. Predictable result, but it's just un completely unpredictable. Completely yeah. unpredictable. And, and it's the same, it's the same logic that's applied to things like prescription drugs. You know, yes. I mean, you hear stories about how manufacturers make a prescription drug all the time. And at first they market it for one thing and then they realize it doesn't really work for that. So they take it off the market, rebrand it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, we thought this was a fever reducer, but it's actually, you know, does something else. It shuts off your liver function or I don't know what, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I think statins has been one of those, uh, you know, sort of drugs where you, you've seen. I think what I've noticed is that particularly over the last 10 years that there's been various news, news reports saying, oh, statins are actually good for this and they're actually good for that. And I'm thinking, well, that's because you know that statins aren't that great for what they were designed for in the first instance, right? And yeah. there's this, this a misconstrued idea um, that, that the cholesterol is the issue. It's like, no, 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 it's yeah. the inflammation is the issue. It's not, you know, the cholesterol is the body's response to inflammation. You need to sort out your diet, sort out your stress levels and so on. And then you won't have the inflammation. So it's the it's the causation that we want to get to, not the not the reaction to it. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk on the check uh, training, don't we, about the idea that blaming cholesterol for for heart disease is like blaming the fire brigade for causing fires because they always show up when there's a fire, right? And and so, right, uh, it's just a great example that the, the statin whole statin industry. Um, but I think it I think it ties in with something I've come to understand uh, around biological function, which is the concept of attractors. And so, uh, you know, an attractor is where you get stability in, in a complex system um, or something that, that a complex system is attracted to. Yeah, but it's, it is a technical, like, physics term, basically. Um, and, you know, the, the first time I heard about attractors, it was, it was talking about uh, it was a colleague of mine actually talking about attractors and saying that, uh, you know, the, the moon's a good example of an attractor. So when, when the moon first hit the earth as an asteroid, complete chaos reigned for, for literally reigned like raining stones for, for, you know, I don't know how, how, how long, whether it was days, weeks, months, years, you know, or eons, but, but basically for, for a long period of time, there were, uh, you know, all kinds of meteors circling the earth in a, in an orbit. And ultimately those uh, meteors conglomerated into a single um, planet, like mini planet, called the, which we call the moon, which then went into uh, a, a kind of orbit, a stable orbit with us. And initially that orbit was not stable. It was very close to the earth. And it was, 
you know how the tides rise when when it's a full moon um well you know the earth was so close that the the land mass was rising so it was kind of creating mini earthquakes all the time as as the as the moon went around the earth mm-hmm. but gradually moved out i think it's i forget how many miles it's something like 158,000 miles away from us now and now it just affects the uh the oceans primarily or anything that's water-based like humans yeah, yeah. life in general mm-hmm. um but it's now it is now in a complete attractor state so it's in a stable state mm. it hasn't really changed that much for for uh, you know for, for again i don't know the exact uh duration but it is in a stable state so it's not it's not particularly moving away or coming closer anymore so you know when we of attractor state in the human body, then attractor states are things that we return to uh, that create a kind of sense of homeostasis in us. So, for example, walking is a great, great uh, example of an attractor state um, because it's something that our physiology has evolved with over millions of years, and it's something that balances our body. You know, when we walk, every step results in pretty much every joint in the body moving and therefore stimulating the synovium in every joint in the body and therefore stimulating synovial fluid within the joints. It's kind of a self-oiling mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. But also you're using your arms in front of the body and behind the body, the legs in front of the body and behind the body. So you're creating a balance front and back. You're twisting left and right. Okay, your eyes are designed to be on the horizon. So so you're hardwired, all, all animal life is hardwired to keep the eyes on what's called the optic plane which is essentially on the horizon and so what that does is it actually balances out the musculature in the neck right so one of the things that the chiropractors have talked about for years and we talk about in the check system as well is the idea of an atlas dysfunction mm-hmm. but one of the best things you can do to correct an atlas dysfunction is to go out for a walk mm. right because when you go out for a walk your eyes focus on the horizon i mean of course they're going to look down and they're going to look around and so on and so forth but but for the largest part of your walk, you're likely to be looking into the distance, reflexively keeping the eyes on that optic plane or the the uh, the, the, the horizon. And and therefore, as you contract the musculature either side of the neck, well, it, it rebalances the neck from perhaps, you know, some kind of trauma that you've had or some kind of habit you have when you watch TV or, mm-hmm. or lean to the side while you're on the computer. Mm-hmm. But going for a walk will help to rebalance that, mm-hmm. right? I'm not saying it's it's a miracle cure, but but it, that's how the body reorganizes itself and rebalances itself in order that it can maintain function. So walking is a great example of an attractor state for the human body. Ah. And any gait-based activity, and indeed, you know, the primal pattern system that we talk about in the Czech system, yep. you can see those primal patterns as, a, as an attractor. You know, humans are designed to be able to squat uh, with good form. They are designed to be able to bend with good form and to twist and to push and to pull and to lunge mm-hmm. and to walk, right? And to run. So, so that's kind of keeping it fairly biomechanical, but it gets it perhaps a bit more complex in a way when you go to, you know, biochemical and to emotional and so on and, and uh, you know, mental and spiritual even. But, but the, again, there's certain attractors that you can look at within those um, fields and, you know, Organic food is an example of an attractor nutritionally because it's it's what our physiology has evolved to um, to thrive on, right? We we haven't evolved to thrive on, I don't know, 
Hershey's chocolate bars and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That That's not part of our physiology that, that we recognize, but to eat an apple or to eat some steak or stuff that, you know, is, is in its natural status and ideally organic without all the chemicals and pesticides and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. which again, our livers are not well versed in handling those, those uh, new stresses. Right. But, but there are, you see, one of the things I think people often don't understand or don't consider is that foods themselves are stresses, you know, they're non-self, so they initiate an immune response pretty much no matter what you eat because it's not part of you, right? It's just like an organ transplant, but you're doing it via the stomach rather than, you know, actually having it surgically implanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you put an apple, if you surgically implanted an apple where your kidney is, you, you know, you're going to have an issue, but, but we eat them the whole time um, and forget that, you know, 80% of our immune system lines the gut to try and protect us from these foreign organisms. Yep. And so, you know, apples, I mean, tomatoes and the nightshade family they're, they're called the nightshade family because they've got n- deadly nightshade in them right and so our liver has to process that and some people do that fine get no issues but a lot of people get joint pain when they eat the nightshade family mm-hmm. there's an example of um something that you know is natural and can be organic and so on but it can still be a stressor to the system but the, really the point I'm, I'm angling at is that the the you know even if we were to remove all of the chemicals and all of the sort of um, processed foods and so on, um, then, you know, the body still has plenty to do to survive on just an organic, natural, whole food diet. Yeah. And so, but, but, but it's evolved to handle that. So then we're in a kind of balance and a, a relative homeostasis. Again, assuming we're getting the which is a whole other discussion that relates into again how we how we talk about nutrition in the Czech system and the idea that you know certain people um, you know perhaps uh, you and I with, with lighter skin we probably uh, are likely to have recent ancestry that's from more temperate zones. If we had darker skin, we're probably going to have ancestry from more equatorial zones. And there's very different foodstuffs available in those zones. So that's one way we can think about well what food are we going to do better on and which foods are going to be more stressful to our physiology? Mm. But as you know, there's a lot more complexity to that as well. Um, mm-hmm. But again, if you eat the right balance of foods, make them as natural and whole as, as possible. Well, now you're creating an attractor state or a homeostatic environment, which your physiology is going to resonate well with. Right. Right. So yeah, to just rewind briefly there, I was um, saying that one, of, I, th- I think one of the mistakes that humans make, Mm. on the whole is to have that hubris to assume that we can outsmart nature yeah. <clears throat> or, or engineer a superior version of nature in our lives. But then the other mistake is that we either insulate or remove ourselves from nature mm-hmm. and we continually do that. And obviously we have to do that to some degree to survive. And that's, you know, yeah. so we do things like build houses and air conditioning and cars, but the further we get from nature, I, the pattern I see is the, the more dysfunction we invite in our lives, the more, the, the worse we make our health. And what you were saying about organic food, organic whole foods versus eating, you know, Hershey bars or processed foods perfectly illustrates that point. I mean, you see the pattern over and over again. We see, uh, you know, third world countries that have relatively healthy populations. They're eating whatever food they have access to in their home country. Right. And then we come in and drop in a bunch of Walmarts and McDonald's and their health goes to complete shit. And you see it over and over again. And, and, you know, like Pizza Hut does not make a healthy human. 
Yeah. And this yeah. isn't rocket science, but people continually justify it or or seem to ignore that really basic truth. And and yeah. that's frustrating. And and then another point I want to expand on is that you were just talking about walking as an attractor state. And thank you for making that point. That's a really interesting concept, that idea of attractor states. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, and maybe you kind of already answered it, was do you think that walking is a self-corrective style of exercise? It kind of sounds like that's a bit of what you were saying there, but I would add one really important point, which can bring us into our next area of discussion, if you like, which is that that walking can't be in a hoka or in a high heel if it's going to really yeah. do its job, right? Because then it, yeah. it distorts the posture of the individual. It changes the relationship of the pelvis to the spine and takes away some of those benefits. It's got to be either barefoot or minimalist, right? Well, yeah. So, you know, these things are attractive <clears throat> states if you're doing them at what we would call primal standards, right? So, so if you are able to do them with good function, with good form, then they're going to be really healthy for you. But if you struggle to walk and you can't stabilize your core or you can't stabilize your limb uh, effectively and you keep rolling in and overpronating and stressing your, your plantar fascia or your medial Achilles tendon or your medial collateral ligament in the knee with every step you take, well, now it's not really an attractive state, okay? So because it's actually injurious. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do in that situation is we need to descend. We, we call it descending, but making, making easier the mm -hmm. exercise. Uh, or breaking it down into its constituent components. So if we saw the knee was rolling in, for example, well, you and I know that what mainly controls the, the, the knee is the hip rotator muscles and to some degree the core muscles as well, possibly one or two muscles around the knee like biceps femoris and so on, but but really primarily the hip rotators. And so the, um, the, the important thing there is that we now uh, target the areas where the deficits are and then reintegrate that and bring it back to primal standards and when you hit primal standard well well now it's going to become uh an attractive state it's going to be healthy and healthful for you it's going to be health promoting for mm -hmm. you um but yeah so of course you know there's been a big discussion on uh you know cushioning and barefoot and all that kind of thing particularly over the last 15 years or so um i think vibram or vibram um the, the, the obviously i know you know but the listeners probably won't know uh, at this point that i was involved with with uh, vibram from 2007 um and i was actually in new york funnily enough we talked about new york earlier but i was in new york uh teaching a course and one of the students walks in wearing a pair of the vibram and um i had i had written to Adidas, maybe seven years prior to that, suggesting something al almost identical because they had a Taekwondo shoe, which mm -hmm. um, is very much like the vibe in terms of being very, very barefoot, you know, very, very, uh, well, let's say uh, slimline, you know, perhaps four or five millimeters of sole, something like that. Um, but it was just a standard shoe uh, and they felt great and they still make them and I still, you know, will wear them from time to time. But but the, the, the point is, is that, you know, I was trying to convince Adidas to make something to allow the toes to function independently because you know that's how the foot's evolved and there's various rationale for why that could be quite helpful um so anyway just just to to sort of let people know in advance i i i've had some uh you know i suppose you could say co corporate ties with with vibram over the years i'm not involved with them anymore so that that i basically became their distributor to the uk market from 2007 to 2017 and so you know 
part of the, that story, and the reason I told you the story about New York was that right around that time, 2006 it was actually, that I, I was writing a chapter for a naturopathic medicine book, a natural medicine book, basically. And so I've been commissioned to write the, the chapter on rehabilitation. And, um, you know, it being a natural medicine book, I was essentially talking about this idea of attractor states and uh, evolution, looking at how the body uh, has evolved to function. And I got maybe 10 or 12 references on some of the benefits of barefoot. And there were things like, you know, uh, improving venous return, improving lymphatic return, improving foot strength, minimizing impacts, which seemed a bit counterintuitive, but, yep. but that was one of the studies was talking about. Obviously, there's the whole notion that the foot is extremely sensitive. And if anything's sensitive in nature, uh, then in general, it, it's to provide information, right? The eyes are very sensitive, uh, you know, the feet, the hands, etc. So, so the, the point there is that, you know, the, um, I guess I'm just trying to think where I was, where I was going to go with, cause I, I started talking about sensitivity of the feet. Yeah. So, so I, I explained all this to, to, to Vibram and, and the reason sometimes I call them Vibram is they're an Italian company. So they call themselves Vibram. Okay. Vibram. Um, oh, okay. Armani that set it up. It's a little bit like uh, Adidas. It was Adi Dasla who set up Adidas or Adidas. Vibram ah. uh, is from, from Vitali Bramani. Um, ah. But, okay. uh, but mo most people know them as Vibrams. Um, yes. And so I, I basically, because I've been looking into this whole thing around barefoot and evolution and thinking about it, you know, from, um, from the perspective of the sensitivity of the feet. And um, I wrote to, to, to Vibram and said, well, look, you know, this is a great shoe for rehabilitation because I'm always telling my patients to go barefoot, but most of them won't do it because who wants to go outside barefoot? You know, they're going to get muddy feet. They're worried they're going to tread on something sharp. They think they'll look silly and, and so on. And some people would argue, well, you still look silly in a pair of Vibrams. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think they look pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the point being is that you're, you're, most people are somewhat limited as to where they will go barefoot. Um, but this was like the perfect solution that allowed you that little bit of protection, but the foot could still function uh, uh, pretty much unimpeded. Um, uh, and you still had that sensitivity and the ability for the foot to mold the contours of the ground and so on. So, um, so anyway, when I explained that to them, they hadn't realized there were any kind of benefits to the shoe. They, they really thought that it was just a quirky idea that perhaps some sailors would get behind because uh, the, yeah. the story for them was that, they'd been approached by a design student with this idea and um, uh, he had approached several footwear companies and they all kind of laughed him out of the offices and said, no, you know, no one's going to do that. But at, at uh, Vibram, the CEO was a sailor and, um, and he was saying, well, you know, when the boat gets wet, it's slippy and it's dangerous, but we love that feeling of being barefoot on the boat. So if we could use our grip technology to create something that felt like being barefoot, then we could see a market for this in sailing. So that was the kind of commercial thinking behind it. So then suddenly, you know, I came along talking about the rehabilitation benefits, a chap called Ted McDonald, who's also known as Barefoot Ted and is featured in, you know, uh, Born to Run, which is quite a famous book on, on running. Um, he, he came along and said, well, look, I'm running a marathon in these. So if you want to get some pictures of me running the marathon, um, then, you know, I'll be your first, uh, kind of sponsored athlete as it were. Okay. Um, and, and this was the first thing. So it's quite different to a lot of other products because a lot of products, uh, 
people for a gap in the market and say, okay, so uh, there's a gap in the market here, so we're going to try and fill that gap. But actually with, with uh, Vibram, it was the market that told them what the gap was. You know, So they, they produced it for sailing and suddenly the market said, well, we want to use it for running, we want to use it at the gym, we can use it for rehabilitation and so on. And so suddenly it exploded um, from there, really. Um, so that was 2006 that that all initiated. 2007, we became a distributor. And then, of course, from that point onwards, I started to look into... Um, this in even more depth, you know, more research studies started to come out, uh, started doing things like taking various barefoot running workshops and minimalist running workshops. And um, yeah, you know, increasingly what was coming out in the research or being dug up from old research was that the more cushioning you have between you and the ground, the harder you strike the ground. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone, I haven't seen anyone put any good explanation to that um, but if you think of it from a Punjabi's model perspective, so, you know, one of the models we used to, to, to think about the, the human body, particularly, you know, joints in the human body is Punjabi's model where you've got three subsystems in any joint. So you've got the, the neurological subsystem, okay, which is providing information, but also controlling the muscles. Then you've got the, the muscular subsystem or the active subsystem, which is, of course, moving the joint. And stabilizing the joint and then you've got the passive subsystem which is things like the ligaments and the joint capsules and and they essentially hold the joint together in unforeseen circumstances but provide extra strength around the joint in terms of ligaments and so on um and so if you think about walking and running from that model's perspective well in order to be able to contract the right muscles around any of your joints in the lower limb you need information coming in. So you, you know, you're looking at the ground, you're looking at the contours of the ground, but you're feeling the ground as well. And if you can't feel where you're at in space, then you're going to hit the ground harder, right? So if you can't quite feel, have I, have I hit the ground? Is it stable under my foot? Is it contoured? What, you know, what's going on here? Then you'll just push a little harder. And so what they've found is that essentially the more cushioning that's between you and the ground, the harder you strike the ground and the greater the impact. Mm -hmm which is, again, completely sort of counterintuitive and, and opposite yeah. to what you think. Definitely, um, definitely. But, but it's clear in science, right? I mean... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And when the hocus came out, which is this idea of, um, you know, having uh, what's well, called maximum. <laughs> so it's, it's the, the opposite pole to minimalists. Um, mm -hmm. but, but trying to retain some of the benefits. So, so the idea with the maximalist shoes was that or is that, um, you know, the minimalist guys were saying, well, you know, we want the foot to be able to flex. We want to be able to, um, you know, not support the foot. So it has to support itself. So it starts to get stronger when there's lots of research now that backs that up. Um, but also what most running shoes have is what's called a heel drop. So it's about two centimeters in most running shoes. So in other words, your heel is two centimeters higher than the forefoot. Right. So it's kind of walking around in slight, mini stilettos right uh, yep. or running and that tends to encourage a heel strike as you run um which we can talk about in more detail uh, potentially later but but it also means that you hit the ground a bit harder because you've got two centimeters between your your heel and the ground when you when you strike it and so but of course when there's that drop from the heel to the forefoot well then not only does it encourage a heel strike but if you're standing around or doing, say, you know, some squats or some deadlifts in a standard running shoe, 
then that heel lift essentially functions like, like a high heel shoe and it facilitates the quadriceps and it relatively inhibits the glutes. And so what we end up with is an imbalance around the pelvis and, and quad dominant type patterns of movement. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, so, and again, that was part of the story with the minimalist shoes was, you know, essentially if you can, if you can use your foot the way it's designed to be used or it has evolved to, to, to be used, then you're going to get a much better activation of, or much more balanced activation of glutes and yeah. quads. Yeah. You know about the pelvis yeah well the maximalist guy said okay that's a good idea so let's make sure there's no heel drop in our shoes but let's make them super super thick so it feels like you're running on clouds was their kind of strap line <laughs> but when they did the research into it um and there's a yeah irene davis yeah uh, okay. yeah yeah Maybe. so she, she she's a researcher uh in in this kind of you know gates uh yeah. Um, and she found that when you run in, in, you know, maximalist shoes, that you strike the ground even harder to the extent that the accelerometers they're using didn't even, uh, register. It was off the scale. Right. Wow. So, um, yeah. So, and again, you, you know, you question why that is, well, it's cause you're even further away from the ground or the nervous system needs to know where the ground is, mm -hmm. right. Pushes harder through the shoe and then it finds the ground. It's like, ah, oh, okay, now we can stride forwards um but uh but yeah so so that's some of the the discussion there i suppose linking into the um attractor side of it thinking of gate as an attractor state um if you consider how long we spent barefoot from an evolutionary perspective compared to how long we've been shod um yeah. of course barefoot is a far stronger attractor for our biomechanics and our physiology than than running in running shoes so it's not to say people shouldn't run in running shoes. There's, there's still going to be a benefit to doing that because you're out, you're, you know, you're getting your vitamin D, you're, you know, you're moving, you're, you've got cardiorespiratory benefits and so on and so forth. So there's lots of benefits still to running in a standard pair of running shoes, but it's not going to be as much of an attractor state um, because it's just not the way we have evolved to move. And when people take their shoes off or they go into a very minimalist shoe, they almost invariably will forfeit strike and when you put a running shoe on, you almost invariably will heel strike. And mm -hmm. what it does is the heel strike creates, it's, uh, the way I used to describe it is it's a bit like pole vaulting, right? So it's like, as you strike the ground with your heel, it will create a jar and then you'll kind of vault over the top of it. That's what a heel strike does. But when you forfeit strike, you get a much softer landing. And by the time the heel comes down towards the ground, and they say it should just kiss the ground, your center of mass has moved over the foot. And so that means you don't get any kind of spike of pressure. You just get a, a mounding up of pressure and then a rounding off of pressure. So there's yeah. no, let's say, like, like with a pole vault type uh, approach. And so that, that spike of pressure is called uh, an impact transient. And it's, it's linked in with a number of, of different injuries, such as um, uh, medial tibial stress syndrome and stress fractures and so on. So that forfeit strike seems to be, you know, A, less injurious, B, more efficient. And again, there's, there's, there's uh, you know, there's always conflicting evidence on these things, but on balance, it seems like it's a little more efficient, but it's how the system evolved to function. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
one of the things that I think is relevant for, from a, an attractor state sort of a discussion point of view is that an impact transient is, is a vibration going through the system. And the whole system is vibrational, right? You know, everything that we do, whether it's what we're doing now where we're talking and we're creating little vibrations in our vocal cords and, and those vibrations are, are, are sort of jangling the bones around in our inner ear and then our nerves are making sense of that and so on. That's, that's a vibration. But then, um, you know, also when we move and when we breathe and when we eat stuff, all of these things at, whether it be, you know, at a, a, an audible or visual level of vibration or whether it be at, you know, a far lower level, you know, molecules vibrate, atoms vibrate, and that vibration is what provides information, right? So when we walk and when we run, it creates a vibration. And if we run the way that nature has designed us to run and that our ancestors have run for four million years, then that's sending information into our system that we're running. And, uh, you know, you, as, as I just described, you get this smooth ramping up of, of force and then a, a rounding off as you go into your next step. But if you suddenly put on a pair of running shoes, which you've only been doing since the 1970s, well, now you're creating a, a jar through the system that our physiology has never been exposed to, you know, or if it has, it would have been sporadically, you know, when you're running along a soft ground, you suddenly hit a bit of hard ground, right? So it'd be more of a, an unexpected and rare occurrence as opposed to every step, 500 steps per leg, per mile, X number of times per week, you know. When you're getting information in the system like that, you know, vibration to the system, what the research into fascial um, interconnectivity of the body shows is that vibrations is transferred right through the cell matrix into the DNA, right? So, so whatever vibrations you're exposed to is actually having an effect, a direct mechanical effect on your DNA. Now, whether or not it changes the expression of the DNA, that that's you know it's not we've not studied things to that depth yet, mm-hmm. but uh, but but nevertheless you know everything that we do and the way we talk and the way we move you know what we sing about you yeah, know the music we listen to, to all that right. stuff but yeah, yeah yeah creates a vibration and that that's felt mm-hmm. right way into the inner parts of our most innermost self right mm-hmm. yeah so, interesting interesting so. Yeah, talking about that barefoot <clears throat> discussion and the heel strike and the foot, you know, if we, I've thought a lot about this in the world of cycling, and I'm actually involved in a, a shoe project that's working to refine the cycling shoe or improve it because I think modern cycling shoes are a disaster, uh, in my opinion. They're just, they're uh, constructed on this old method that's sort of a relic from 100 years ago. And, and of course, no one made a cycling shoe with any of this type of you know, biomechanical idea, ideology in mind. They just made what they thought was going to be efficient. And fundamentally, the cycling shoe is a lever, right? And we put, all cyclists, in my opinion, are biased towards anterior chain recruitment over posterior chain or, or that disbalance, meaning quad dominance by definition. And, and one of the reasons for that is that the cycling shoes are made with effectively, almost all of them have uh, a heel drop to the toe, the built-in, but they also have what I call toe spring. So the toe is put into a basically a mild position uh, that activates the windless mechanism. So the toe is dorsiflexed or pointing up, right? And it's insane if you think about it, because if you went to the gym 
And you said, well, I want you to put on a pair of like wooden Dutch clogs that kind of jam your toes up towards the ceiling and then don't allow your heel to, to drop straight to the floor. And you ask anyone who's a real serious strength conditioning person, somebody who's doing Olympic lifts or deadlifts and squats, those types of lifts with heavy weight, and you ask them to put on a shoe like that, they'd be like, these things are terrible. I can't drive into the floor. I've got no ability to, I mean, maybe not everyone. I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt here, but it, you can, for me, it's intuitively obvious that if you put your foot in that position, it's sort of constrained. It can't function the way and engage with the ground or the surface, whatever you're pushing away on, it can't engage with that surface with proper neurological function. It's going to be inhibited. But yeah. in cycling, we additionally complicate or muddy the picture neurologically by doing two other things. One is the shoe's really rigid. The, the sole is rigid. I call it a carbon fiber flipper. So that's going to going to spin down any proprioceptive sense because of course the foot's not striking anything it's it's an open chain exercise as you push the crank the pedal moves away from you but then secondarily we put an axle somewhere near the ball of the foot and mm -hmm. that i think up regulates quad dominance because yeah. you know any proprioceptive input we have a force we have this kind of sense of a fulcrum in the foot and that's near the ball of the foot and that's going to translate up the chain to anterior chain is going to translate to quad dominance. So we have cycling as a sport that's inherently sort of set up to be this quad dominant sport yeah, yeah. from the beginning. So this is why in when I'm bike fitting with someone, when I'm setting up their bike, I'm always thinking about how we can spin up posterior regulation uh, or excuse me, posterior recruitment of muscles, you know, glutes and hamstrings, et cetera, and, and give some balance to that system. But then that's also why I'm commonly recommending people do things like go for walks in your feet yeah yeah um because you've got to offset all these cycling specific you know sport specific cycling uh sport specific movement pattern compensations that we develop over time especially in a repetitive cyclic sport like cycling where you're just literally it's it's not you know european football soccer it's not tennis it's not any number of other sports where yes you're repeating the motion but you're not as constrained right yeah I mean, you can swing a tennis racket and your arm can be off a few millimeters in any given direction and every single stroke, let alone the endless permutations of where the ball is coming at you. So you've got to adjust for that. But yeah, in cycling, yeah. it is the exact same motion because the crank length never changes. The cleat position doesn't change. The saddle height doesn't change unless something slips or breaks or moves. So, um, yeah. yeah it's an interesting one, isn't it? And it's, it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of anti, uh, cycling or rowing or anything that's kind of fixed axis like that. But, but at the same time, from a health perspective, I think that it's difficult to classify those things as attractors mm. that obviously, you know, cause we didn't evolve to do them. Right. You know, you could even make right. the same argument swimming to some degree, although there's, there's some discussion around aquatic apes and so on, but, but, but the, but there are benefits to them. It's like Paul often says, Paul Czech often says that there's no such thing as a, as a bad exercise, as a badly prescribed exercise. Yes. That's one of his little phrases. Um, but the other, the other comment is that um, the best exercise is the one that you'll do, right? So if you love mm -hmm. cycling, then that's so much better for you than sitting on the couch, right? Um, uh, and, you know, and I, I, I do very much enjoy cycling when I do it, but when I'm thinking of it from, a human health perspective, I see it a little bit more like some other sports 
you know, we often use boxing as an example in terms of, you know, you don't want to have good posture when you're boxing because if you've got good posture, you're just standing right upright, ready to be chinned, right? You right. need to run into an upper cross syndrome, a kind of hunched type posture uh, to protect yourself. But you don't want to be training in the gym with that posture because you'll trash your elbows, your, sorry, your shoulders, you'll trash your neck. You know, if you're lifting heavy loads with that rounded posture, that's not going to do your joints any good. And you don't want to be like that for most of your living day. But when you're in the boxing ring, you absolutely want to be able to get into that rounded posture. And same with the bike. You don't want to be sat upright with a neutral spine on a bike, right? You know, you not mm. only would you give yourself a prostate issue. Um, <laughs> probably. Ah, so, okay, that's a great point. If I can pause you there, because I... I mean, this is, this is what I do is I try to figure out like, how can I optimize people's posture on the bike a little bit? Yeah. And, and you're right. If you're sitting on a traditional saddle and right. you're sitting with a neutral spine, you're going to have so much anterior rotation of the pelvis that you're going to be ramming your prostate into the nose of the saddle. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and this is something I've looked at and worked with extensively. And there's one company in particular that I think makes an outstanding product that allows very healthy forward rotation of the pelvis and thus a more neutral spine on the bike. And it's Italian. It's an Italian company again, coincidentally, uh, yeah, yeah. It's called Sella SMP and they make a saddle that's very curved. It's got a very wide cutout and it's got two curves that match the shape of the ischium. Yeah, yeah, right. And when you put it with the nose down, it still supports the pelvis in a way that doesn't mean that you're kind of falling forward too much. You're still supported, but it allows that anterior rotation and it's a unique design on the market. There are other saddles that have kind of followed some of the same basic philosophies that got cutouts and so forth, but none of them yeah. in my experience are as curved when viewed from the side. It's got this, this right. shape that really matches the shape of the issue, which I kind of describe to people as sort of being like rocking chair feet, yeah. right? Yeah. They're kind of wider in the back and they're slightly curved and they get narrower in the front. And that's the shape that SMP has. And then it has this giant cutout. So when you rotate forward, uh, I, I have this experience all the time when people come from a conventional saddle and they get on an SMP they um, normally when they rotate forward and they get really low and aerodynamic and try and get down in the drops, you just get this spike of pressure on the perineum. And, yeah. and all cyclists have come to sort of recognize that as just what you do. You deal with it when you go to go fast, you just have to get kicked in the balls or the, or yeah. the lady bits, unfortunately. Yeah, right, and, right. Um, and it's just sort of this trade-off of the sport. And when they get on SMP, I ask them to do that and they go, oh, wow, this is amazing. I, I can roll forward. And I don't have this pressure. And it changes the way people pedal their bikes. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So that's a bit of, you know, it, and this is where the nuance of cycling is like you can dork out on all these little technologies and bits to sort of um, refine the position. And so I'm making my way around the contact points, trying to trying yeah. to refine them. The SMP is a really good product. There are a few other products that I'm testing. Yeah, it sounds really good. The, yeah. the one thing I would like to ask you your your opinion on is is that. Um, Part of my understanding, uh, which is which is very basic compared to, to your own in terms of cycling, is that um, you know that flexed spine position that you tend to adopt um, when you are cycling, you need to to put in a little bit more power. You see the head starting to bob, mm -hmm. and my understanding of that head bob is that it's it's pre tensioning the fascia through the spine and allowing you to use the the hamstrings and the glutes a little more to to drive the hip into extension. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you've then got a neutral spine, well, now you don't have so much pretension in the fascia. So actually to have a flex lumbar spine, particularly if you're, say, cycling uphill or something like that, uh, or, or you're just trying to put a bit more power in and you've got that kind of head bob starting to, to, to kick in, 
Does yeah. that fit with your own understanding, or is that is that something that uh, I'm I'm misunderstanding? That's a great question. So, my understanding would be that okay, if we want to engage more glute, like go to the gym and do a squat, mm. we know that as you as you put the pelvis into anterior rotation, you engage more fibers of the glute, right? Yeah. So if you try to do a squat with a vertical sacrum and a very an extremely flexed spine, first of all, you would damage your spine. But secondly, you would you would downregulate the recruitment of glute fibers and upregulate the recruitment of quads, I would assume, right? So in that same cycling position, if we anteriorly rotate the pelvis, I think what happens is we actually get this greater tension along the lumbothoracic fascia, that line. Yeah. And, and so when we push down on the pedal, say, for example, with the left leg and we're pulling, we're tensioning with the right arm. So that's yeah. an ipsilateral contraction of that. We're counter opposing that force. Then if we have a strong core and if we have tension along the posterior aspect of the back in that case, then I think that ties that chain together. And when the head bobs and comes over to that side, then it, it ties it all together. I don't think the spinal flexion is really desirable, but I will say that the majority of cyclists, even at the world level do ride with a fair amount of spinal flexion. Not all of them. Some of them are quite good, especially when you're in the hoods position, you can sit in the hoods with a relatively neutral spine. And that's how I aim to, to sit on my bike when I ride. And I believe I do it most of the time when we get into the drops, you know, that's such a low position and the, the torso is so horizontal. We accept that there's going to be some decoupling or flexion of the spine, you know, somewhere in the yeah. lumbar vertebra typically. Yeah. Makes sense. But, makes sense. you know, even Kelly Starrett talks about this, you know, he talks about when you have spinal flexion, you can either have it kind of globally, right. Mm -hmm. Sort of spread sort of universally or, or, or equally amongst, you know, a lot, many of the vertebrae or all the vertebra, or yeah. you can have what he calls a local spinal extension fault where it's really focused, like yeah, yeah. very mm -hmm. acutely. Yeah. Hinge point yeah. at like one or two vertebra. And clearly that's not really desirable because it's just going to put so much stress on those vertebra and the chances of a disc problem are just probably going up and up and up the more time you spend in that position. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. that's how a lot of cyclists ride. They're, they're like very acutely hinged, you know, right, in right. one, one area, very locally hinged, I guess I should say. Yes. Um, but you figure, okay, that's going to shut down. Like, okay, if we have all this information traveling through our spinal cord and through our nervous system, I mean, we're just kinking that hose, right? Yes. And then we're, right. we're kinking the lumbar, lumbar thoracic fascial line, that tension, we're kind of breaking that line. So that puts us in a less stable position, which will encourage more head bobbing, I would think, right? It's because you're effectively disconnecting the power. We have the two power centers the pelvis and the shoulder. And we're kind of like breaking the hose between those yeah. two degrees. So then we're going to, so if we see some instability at the pelvis, then yeah. I would think we're going to see that kind of magnified up the chain because we don't have a cohesive system to kind of ground between those two control centers, which is the inner core and, and the fascial tension. Well, so this kind of, kind of ties back in quite neatly with what we were talking about with barefoot as well, because one, one of the things with barefoot is is the notion that the the toes or the the rays of the foot. So if you, if you include the metatarsals that are within the foot uh, as the you know part of what's called the ray, which goes out into each of the toes, um, then each of those rays should be in a straight line. And what we see in 
most Westerners or most people that have grown up wearing shoes is that they'll have bent in toes, especially the big toes. So this yeah. people call halibut valgus, right? Right. Um, there should be zero degrees. It should be just like, you know, a straight line. Um, <clears throat> but my, my, my clinical experience suggests it's about 15 degrees. It's fairly average, okay, for, for most people to have that bend on the big toe. Mm-hmm. So, so what you've got is you've got a, a part of the body there where you're trying to transfer quite significant forces through it you know, when you're running, you, it's, it's easily three times body weight. And then when you're jumping, it's nine times body weight going through your foot, right? right. So this is huge forces when you think what that means. Um, and, you know, you think of the size of the toe. Nine times your own body going through that that joint, right? It's cra- crazy amounts of force it's handling. But that that force is traveling around a bend that's not supposed to be there. Okay, so this is this is kind of where I'm linking it back into what you're saying about the hinge point in the back. If you've yeah. got one or two joints that are, are hinging or, or let's say moving, they'd probably be hypermobile, and the joints around them are hypomobile. Right. Okay. So kind of more look, almost look like a straight spine. Um, well, then suddenly you've got a huge, huge forces you're trying to generate that you want to transfer through the kinetic chain, and they're having to go around the the bend of that sudden kink. Right. Whereas if you share that out, um, you know, joint by joint, well, then that's perfect because the energy and, you know, when I'm talking energy, I'm not talking about anything woo woo here. I'm talking about kinetic forces, right? Kinetic yeah. energy. Uh, it's just going to travel through the system fluidly and efficiently. But when there's a kink like that, what it does is it, it, it creates a kind of bottleneck. And it really means that you create a lot of kinetic energy in that specific motion segment, which then creates piezoelectric charge in that segment yes builds up and the piezoelectric charge is what then stimulates things like fibroblasts and osteoblasts to lay down more bone to lay down more uh, connective tissue so you start to get a lot of stiffness in that area you start to see degenerative changes on x-rays that kind of thing yep. and so ultimately that that can then lead to, to injury and, and symptoms down the line so we certainly do want to um, make the body as kind of uh, optimally aligned and fluid in the way it works as, as possible. Otherwise, we, we tend to get, you know, cross time and repetitive loading issues to the underlying structures. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. Therefore, the efficiency ultimately of the, and the ability to perform. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah, 100%. Um, so, so I think just to make sure people understand, Matt, if I can translate what you're saying, yeah. basically, if a cyclist is riding with a very acute flexion point in the spine where they've got a really sort of pointy angle at any point in their spine, that point is going to, to generate some stress and that stress, yeah. the body has to respond to that stress. It's a point of, it, it sets up a paradigm of stability and instability or rigidity and hyper mobility, yeah. right? Hypo mobility and hyper mobility. And that equation, the body solves that equation in, in particular, in any joint that suffers from repeated too much laxity or too much movement, then the body tries to stabilize it. And the, the example that everyone will be familiar with that where this happens is when someone has really, uh, really out of balance head posture and their head is carried very forward of the midline of the body. When you view them from the side, if their head kind of juts forward, kind of like that hammerhead character in Star Wars in the bar scene, right? Yeah. Well, what happens is the, the weight of the head is projected forward to the pelvis and the neck has a lot of stress there and the neck muscles are trying to support the weight of the head. And eventually the body will actually build up 
of cartilaginous tissue to support the weight of that head. So it doesn't just fall off onto the ground and drop, drop forward all the time and to relieve this tension on the neck. And that's yeah. called, uh, it's called kyphosis, right? And eventually if it gets to an extreme point, it's called a dowager's hump, that's which right. you see in really old people who have been walking around with carrot with head forward head carriage for many years, they get kind of a hump. They almost look like a hunchback. And that's the body yeah. literally building up bone and and cartilage to support the weight of that head that can happen anywhere in the body this is how bone spurs are created right that's what a bunion is as well that's what a bunion is yep yeah yeah yeah, yeah. kind of ties in again you know with with the, the the barefoot concept one of the elements of that is that you know when you put your your foot into a rigid shoe uh like a cycling shoe or uh like a, a sprinting um like running shoe you know so uh what are they called spikes yeah, yeah. running spikes um or indeed you know even even um a lot of uh, walking shoes are pretty rigid typically walking boots very rigid but also quite a lot of running shoes they're quite rigid they don't have a lot of flexibility in the sole because there's a fair bit of thickness there and so you know your foot is called a, a joint complex right because it's it's got 34 joints in it mm -hmm. okay and when you create a rigid sole like that, well, now it's a lever, which means that most of the load is going through the talocrural joint, which is the ankle joint, okay? And most of the other joints aren't really doing much, okay? So normally you would share that load out. So this is a concept in biomechanics and in uh, kind of clinical medicine, which is called load sharing, right? So you want to share the loads between all 34 joints, but actually what you're doing is you're focusing almost all of the load into one joint. Yep. And, you know, that obviously puts stress onto the joint, but it also negates the function of a lot of, a lot of the musculature in and around the foot, which is designed to cater for all those 34 joints, right? So there's only certain muscles that can effectively move that talocrural joint. Um, right. This is why what we see with people that wear shoes uh, as, as a trend is they have very weak feet, very little meat foot but you you look at someone who's grown up barefoot they've got big meaty feet and if you were a cannibal you wouldn't mind having the foot for dinner right but if you've got your average uh, <laughs> uh industrialized person's foot not only would it have fungal infections but that it would um have no meat <laughs> right so, so you'd be really disappointed if you're the cannibal eating that um <laughs> but so um but, but yeah, you know, and, and it ties back in with what we're talking about in terms of specific adaptation to imposed demands. When, when you support something, then, yeah. then it gets weaker. And when, when you don't support it, but use it, it has to get stronger. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, that's what we want to achieve with all parts of the body. But the foot is, is still a part of the body where we think of it uh, in very old terms, you know, because we, we've, we've known since the 1980s that when you've got a whiplash, it's good good idea to support the neck for for a couple of weeks. Get get that that you know neck brace on for a couple of weeks while all of those tissues are healing. But you mm -hmm. want to get that thing off as quickly as you can, right? And get moving it again. You certainly don't want to leave it on for for any longer than necessary because otherwise you cause weakness in the neck. Right. But it's taken us another thirty or forty years to 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 start to think of the foot in the same way. And in fact, still many people do think that the foot needs to be supported. Mm but it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, this is, this is a progression I've made in my own career for years. I've raced with very rigid orthotics in my cycling shoes. So not just a rigid carbon fiber flipper, but I'm actually putting, 
you know, this rigid base underneath it. And, and I'm progressing away from that. And that's been quite a journey because I'm quite a mobile person um, in terms of my, well, it's interesting, you know, because in the check system, we talk about that nine point flexibility scale, mm-hmm. which is really ligamentous in, in nature, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, yeah. It's a system where you can do a simple test and it measures and it gives you a score one to nine or zero to nine and determines yeah. how flexible you are, but it's looking at ligamentous tissue. And I had a moment in IMS two when I did this test with Ashley, because in the cycling world, I'm kind of known as like this ridiculously aerodynamic rider because I can ride with a super, super low handlebar. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not, you know, in the world of professional cyclists, I'm not particularly powerful. Mm. I wasn't when I was a pro, I'm not now I'm 49, but, uh, I was, you know, somewhat average for, for, for fast people in the U S we'll say in terms of my power production, but I was really, really, really arrow. So it enabled me to kind of cheat the system a little bit and use what I had rock, what you got. Right. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason I could ride that low bar is because I was so mobile. I'm very, very flexible, but on the nine point scale, nine being the most flexible score, I'm only like a two. And so, and mm-hmm. so it kind of blew my mind a little bit. I was like, Ashley, what is the deal? She's like, Oh, you're not very flexible. I'm like, wow. Uh, no, I'm definitely, people are always joking. Like, actually, it's the point where when we get in a race, people complain about being on my wheel because they don't get a good draft because I'm that <laughs> tiny, right? Yeah. So, so then it made me think, and then that goes back to our conversation about muscles and the optimal level of tension in a muscle, you know, and you're mm-hmm. saying when you, if you're a rugby player, you want, you want stiff muscles to a degree because you're taking impact. That's what the nature of that sport is all the time, right? And if the system's too 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 lax then you just get crushed you break bones and tear ligaments and and rip tendons and and so forth so i think it's that what i figured out is that my muscles are really really quite have a very yin quality we'll say they're very very fluid they're very relaxed yeah and that's what enables me to to ride in that really arrow position with that extreme level of hip hinge and that extreme level of shoulder pronation and and all those things that are specific ed, um you know adaptations to the imposed demand of cycling but yeah. ligam- in a in terms of pure ligamentous mobility i'm nothing special so I, that was a really interesting insight just kind of a sidebar on my little yeah well you know i think talking about the rigidity of, of the shoes and, and the rigidity of uh you know the body and so on um one of the things that i picked up through the vibram five fingers distribution um was that with uh barefoot what again it's a bit counterintuitive but when you run barefoot you actually stiffen the leg more so you get more leg stiffness when you run barefoot than when you run in a running shoe mm. and you're like well that doesn't sound right you think you cushion yourself more when you're barefoot you know but no because you, you know because you've got no cushioning you think well you have to cushion your landing more but actually no you run stiffer so it trains leg stiffness now one of the things that actually helps you to run faster is leg stiffness, right? So a sprinter, especially because their, their thing is all about speed, right? The stiffer they can become in terms of their ability to maintain stiffness as they strike the ground, then the faster they can generate power. So, so, so really top flight speed is a combination of leg stiffness and fiber composition. So your amount of type two Bs and the ability to generate power out of those type two Bs or, or type two Xs is perhaps yeah. more technically yeah. way to say it. But so 
and and this was by the way why um what's his name oscar pristorius who was the, the fairly famous sprinter who's you know had a, a, a checkered history since since he was famous um yep uh, but had you know he applied to run in the in the standard olympics even though he had blades on both feet and he 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 got or both legs i should say but he got um turned down because they said it's an unfair advantage because yep. the titanium is stiffer than human bone so it's it's not fair on the the the, the human athletes the, the, the human athletes the able-bodied athletes you with yeah. human <laughs> <laughs> yeah words right so they get into trouble um yes. but so um so the point being is that you know, you want to improve your stiffness in the legs if you can to generate power. Mm-hmm. We had this discussion with a, a British sprinter who I, I won't, won't sort of uh, give away who he was, but he was, he was one of the best sprinters in the UK, was touted that he was going to win the European Championships. He met with us, he tried out some of the five fingers shoes. What he had found was that when he was uh, doing his training through the, through the timing gates, that he was faster when he was barefoot than when he was in his running spikes. Mm. So this ties back in with that idea that, you know, the running spikes are designed to have these rigid soles so they act as a lever so that you can use your primer, your prime movers, like your gastrocs uh, yeah. in the car, yeah. so on to generate that forward propulsion. Um, but he actually found that when he ran barefoot through these timing gates, he was faster than when he was in his spikes. Interesting. So he, but he's what he was concerned about was coming out of the blocks in the acceleration phase. So he approached us to say, "Look, you know, I've got this finding. I've read a little bit around it. I'd like to try out the Vibram Five Fingers to sprint in." So we gave him a bunch of different styles, um, and he said, "You know, I'm not sure if I need the spikes for the traction and so on." And um, and I was talking with him. I said, "Well, you know, if you think about it, the the the, the Vibram soles are made out of TC1 performance rubber." That's the same rubber as as uh, Formula One cars and and uh, you know pretty much any racing car. Mm-hmm. They're designed to pro- provide traction, and these cars are however many hundred horsepower, right? How many horsepower are you? It's like, well, I'm not even a horse, right? right. I'm not right. even a horse. <laughs> so you can find on the traction side. You don't need spikes on on, on a track, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you've got a good rubber sole. So anyway. He, he took took them and he found he was indeed faster in the Vibram Five Fingers. So then it became a discussion about, well, how much are you going to pay me to wear them? Yeah. Like, okay, we, we, we understand how this works, but, you know, we're not a big company. We were just the distributors of the, to the UK. And, you know, I did a bit of digging into it and um, essentially – yeah, I'm just trying to think how I can tell the story with uh, without giving away who it was. But but basically, there have been some drug issues, uh, and so he wasn't as marketable. He was towards the end of his career, so he wasn't as marketable, ah. so on, all these kinds of things. Um, so we made him an offer, I think, of £20,000 for him to run in the European Championships in the Beaver Five Fingers. And his, his um, uh, manager was there, and he just laughed at us. He said, you're not even in the right ballpark. We're, we're yeah. talking figures yeah and we're like well hang on <laughs> mm. wait a minute so you want us to pay you for wearing our shoes which you're faster in mm-hmm. we're twenty thousand pounds to do that but you're saying you're not going to do it and he and he didn't wear them and he didn't win the race and mm. yeah uh, right um so very interesting to see how these things work in in the real world because the uh without going off track too much, we had a similar situation in golf. You know, we had some of the, the, the biggest names in the world that everyone would know 
loved the five fingers for golf, but they just weren't allowed to win because they had a seven figure deal with Nike or Adidas right. or whatever. They right. preferred to worn our shoes, but unless you've got those seven figures to to, to trump the opposition, you it's, can't get hurt. It's a bizarre moment, right? Because ostensibly a professional athlete, their primary goal is to perform, to <laughs> yeah. win. And, and <laughs> so if they have this equipment that is a clear advantage, you would think, but then there's this tension between, you know, and, and I understand in this world of cycling, you've got to think about the team, right? You've got 30 riders and soigneurs and staff and all the thing. You've got a hundred employees total at least. So when you're talking about bringing in another, you know, two or $3 million for sponsorship or, you know, several hundred thousand euros or whatever, then it impacts the budget of the global program. But if you're talking about a single athlete, a golf player or, mm-hmm. or a runner, you would kind of think like, Hmm, you know, am I, am I like, I don't know. I, you know, it's not for me to make that decision, but it's like, okay, I've, I'm making a lot of money and I'm guaranteed the financial success of my family and I can put my kids through college or whatever. Like, I don't need another, you know, 4 million euros or I don't know, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not in that position. So <laughs> I, what are you going to, I mean, how many yachts do you need? So anyway. But yeah, exactly. But I suppose <laughs> where I was going with the story about the sprinter is that, you know, Ultimately, the, 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 the theory is that the leverage uh, that the shoe provides is superior to what the foot can provide. But the reality, right. at least in that one case study, is completely different. Yeah. And part of the rationale for that you touched on earlier, I, I believe, is that if, if, the, if the toe can get into full extension, you know, around 65 degrees of, of extension of the big toe is where the windless mechanism is at its most potent. Okay. Yep. Um, and... So therefore, your ten- so the windless mechanism is for those that aren't familiar. It's it's the connective tissues in the sole of the foot. So when you extend the toes, and it is actually all the toes, even though quite often we talk about just the big toe because that's ah. the, the strongest part of the windless mechanism. Right. But actually, all of the toes connect into this band of connective tissue that runs from the toes right the way back to the heel. Mm-hmm. And so when you extend those toes, in other words, lifting them up, or indeed when you toe off when you're walking, mm-hmm. then it. Puts tension into that connective tissue which actually uh, rigidifies the foot and allows you to propel yourself forwards without losing power uh in in the joint complex of the foot right, right. so so this sprinter guy was clearly uh you know not compromised by by being in a shoe with a completely flexible sole mm. or indeed barefoot in his training um, and I think it's probably because of that windless mechanism doing what it's supposed to do so you didn't need the the, the lever of the of this uh, running spike, so then I question. Well, from a cycling perspective, still be able to get that same benefit, and I think you probably could. But you might want to play around with uh, pedal shape or something like that, so that as you mm. push down, perhaps you do get sixty five degrees of extension on the big toe. Like, mm. is there a way that you could change the pedal shape so that That's you an can interesting thought. maintain yeah. flexibility? of, of the, the foot, but actually as you're loading, mm. is there a way you can extend the, the toe? I don't know. I don't know. It's just a, you know, thought it's An idea. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, that's interesting. Cause I was speaking with, um, before you and I were recording, I was talking about Jesse Stensland and right. she's a real advocate of barefoot, um, shoes and, and being barefoot. Well, she would say there's no such thing as a barefoot shoe, <laughs> which yeah, yeah, that's correct right. about. <laughs> but, um, she talks, she was actually, she and I had an interesting discussion a few months ago about how she was saying, yeah, when you're sprinting on the bike, if you actually intentionally dorsiflex the the big toe, you'll have an increase in power. And I think that's probably what she was getting at. 
is, yeah, yeah, right. but yeah. you know, most cycling shoes, of course, have, you know, something over the top of the toes. So you can't just, you could, yes. you could push it up, but you'd be kind of just fighting with the upper. You couldn't really actually dorsiflex it. Yeah. And so that yeah. begs the question. Well, two questions. One is, you know, would that be effective? I kind of played with it a little bit. I couldn't quite get the same effect, but also to be fair, Jesse is, you know, every once in a while you come across one of these women that is just like a, a physical athletic specimen like this woman's unbelievable i mean she's running up and down mountains barefoot and leaping off of cliffs and doing parkour and uh, like all the things like she's unbelievable so she probably has a much higher level of function in that area than i do <laughs> full disclaimer but uh specifically her feet uh and and so she was feeling that but what it makes me wonder is okay do we actually have to physically raise the the rays or the toes to activate the the windless mechanism or would it be enough to simply to simply push into an upper and to activate that mechanism i think physically we would my understanding is we would actually have to have them gain some altitude in order to to stabilize the it's really the talocalcaneal relationship right that's where you're getting that rigidity yeah 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 right? yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, so so obviously in gates. So this is what we're trying to to capture is evolution's solution to uh, movement efficiency, and and evolution's solution is to uh, on the toe off phase of gates. Of course, the toes are extending to about sixty five degrees, and therefore it you know tensions this connective tissue. So yeah. if we somehow, as we're trying to generate power create extension in the toes through our pre pressure as yeah. opposed to lifting up. So I, I wouldn't think... I wouldn't uh, think lifting would do it. Yeah, that was my instinct because you're pulling it from the top side. It's not... Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's more the pressure down from, from right. reflecting away um, and from gravity and from the bigger muscles higher up the leg mm -hmm. rather than you actually pulling up with your extensors of your toes. Yep. yep. Which I think would, you know... Part of how I think about that is 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 a neural drive. So you've only got so much neural drive you can muster from your nervous system at any one moment in time. So why would you want to activate your extensors when you're actually trying to activate your flexors? You know, it's like it sounds. I mean, I get get the mechanism. We've just talked a bit about the mechanism that we're trying to engage this windless mechanism, but but it feels to me like it's kind of pushing one way and pulling the other way. Um, yeah. And so the net benefit, I'm not sure how much net benefit you get from that. But also you've got very deeply ingrained motor pattern. Most cyclists will have done you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of, yep. of repetitions, right? Yep. Um, yep. So you've got to then try and change that motor program. That's going to be very tough for most cyclists as well. So I, I, I wouldn't think that's the solution. Yeah. Well, welcome to bike fitting right there. You just synopsized it. You've got a cyclist who comes in who's got a million repetitions. And yeah. what is it? You know, Paul says, it takes what 300 to train a, a new engram from something you've never done before, yeah. but to reestablish an old engram is what I don't, it's like 30,000 reps or something crazy, isn't it? I think he normally says about 5,000. 5,000. Okay. But the point being that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a lot. Great, yeah. 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 Um, so, so you'd have to, one of those reps consciously changing the way that you're using. That's the that's thing. The and when Right. With cycling, it's so after 10 revolutions, you see someone fall into their old pattern. 10, yeah. 10 pedal revolutions. It's really, really hard to have that attention. And it becomes so automatic. It's 
it's interesting. Um, it's interesting to me to hear your story about the British Sprinter and the Vibrams because what strikes me about that is if he's been training ostensibly in conventionally cleated running shoes, which are quite rigid and don't allow that um, dorsiflexion of the rays when you push off, the fact that he basically just went to barefoot and did a test. Now, I'm, I'm kind of making up some things. I'm making some assumptions about this little thought experiment. But he probably was training regularly in cleats. And then he just one day was like, hey, what if we're faster barefoot? And they timed him and he was. And what that's interesting to me is that that system was probably relatively untrained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? He's not used to sprinting with that amount of of, yeah. tor of dorsiflexion in the foot. He, he would be used to training in a much more rigid shoe. So the fact that he was faster untrained is even kind of more interesting. And that makes me think about, you know, when I do my bike fits, I have a movement screen that I put my riders through and, and I'm, that's always in, in uh, flux and formation, especially after IMS3. It's like, hmm, what am I going to include now? But <laughs> in the past, I've used sort of a modified Greycook FMS. And one of the movements in that that I have keyed into, you know, thinking about primal movement patterns, what is cycling in primal movement patterns? Cycling is fundamentally, it's a static hip hinge and then it's a series of lunges. That's mostly yeah. what it is, right? There's no squatting in cycling because no cycling is bilateral. What's pulling. That? And, and a bit of pulling. Yep. Yep. And a static push, you could argue, because you're you're supporting the body weight. So so I look at the at the lunge in the FMS, and what I see, the common denominator is I see that cyclists have horrendously weak and unstable ankles and feet. Right. And this is no surprise based on our conversation, right? Because what are you doing when you're cycling? You're conditioning. People like to say, oh, that rider's so strong, or his legs, her legs are so strong. I think it's a bit of a misnomer. Cycling doesn't really make legs strong. I would argue it makes them more durable, right? Because so you're conditioning the the lower leg, or sorry, the 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 legs in the sagittal plane primarily. And so that's a lot of quads. It's gonna be some calves, it's gonna be some hamstrings and some glutes, hopefully, some. And but because just like you said with the neck brace example, because we're using that rigid carbon fiber lever, we're not working the muscles of the foot and the ankle. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's not, I think we, you know, this comes back also to how we, when we see someone and we do an assessment, we do very careful with our language. Cause how many times have you had people come to you and say, Oh, my glutes don't work or, <laughs> you know, and it's because they went to someone and they said, your glutes don't work. And they kind of glommed onto that, that yeah, terminology. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So I don't like to say like you have really weak feet and ankles, even though so, that's kind of what I'm seeing. It's more like, okay, I think what's happened is your, the muscles up the chain from your feet and ankles have become conditioned to be much more durable and the feet and ankles aren't really meeting that load. It's not that your feet and ankles are maybe weak. You know, they probably work. You can walk, right? You can go up and down stairs. You could pick up a jug of water, but, and you wouldn't, you know, break your ankle, but it's the delta between the muscles up the chain and the foot and ankle. It's that, and every time you ride your bike, you increase that delta. You make that distance or the conditioning levels further apart. And that's where the challenge is going to come, right? Yeah, 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 yeah definitely, definitely. Yeah, no, it reminds me a little bit talking about uh, the concept of, you know, marginal gains, first of all, and, and the idea that, you know, if you look at where you're strong as an athlete and you know, like you say, most cyclists can be so strong in their, in their quads. Yep. Um, 
but where, so where are the gains that you can make? There's probably not a lot in your quads. There may be some, but, but 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 probably you could make gains in your hip extensor mechanism. You could probably make gains in your in your foot strength. Yep. Uh, and so it's like, and and it, you know, this also then ties in with what you were saying about, um, uh, you know, the kind of very sagittal plane nature of it, and the fact that your experience suggests that ankles and and feet tend to be, you know, not as stable as they could be in yep. in hardened cyclists so then if you've got someone who you know with triathlon you've got people that are cyclists that decide they like the idea of some triathlon or they might be a swimmer and they like the idea of but then normally there's the primary sport you know you're one of those you've got a specialism in 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 one of those areas and then you say okay but now i'd like to try bringing in the other two or perhaps the last one or whatever so you know from what you've said if you're if you're coming from cycling and you're moving into triathlon then that's where you really are going to have to be careful with your feet and Absolutely. Uh, with that kind of foot, ankle, lower leg yeah. uh, function. Um, but but one of the guys that we worked with who was quite a good Ironman uh, competitor, he was a, K- a Kona level guy um, mm-hmm. and he loved running in the five fingers because what he said was that, you know, the, the cycling is so quad heavy and if I run in my old running shoes, that's pretty quad heavy as well. But, right. but now my fingers, it's much more calf focused, right? Because yeah. of the four. Right? So what I'm doing is I'm sharing out the loads between different parts of my body for different parts of the event. Mm. Uh, so that was, that was an interesting insight from him. I thought um, that is interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Matt, um, we've been going for a while here and I want to respect your time. I know you've got to go uh, pick up kids and whatnot. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if we could just, do you have just a couple of minutes to button one thing up for us? Of course. Um, so I thought we could, uh, well, this is the question I'll give you and I'll let you handle it how you, how you will. But people often ask me, I tell them, you know, I'm studying this crazy guy, Paul Check. Yeah. Like, who is Paul Check? And um, <laughs> I struggle to answer that question because Paul is, he's got <laughs> such an insane life experience and and so he's he's covered so much ground and learned so much and taught so much and done so much with his life and um so i wonder if you might be able to really just tell us how you found paul briefly um and what attracted you to his teachings and and maybe we get a, a bit of an insight into who paul is in that process yeah right right okay good stuff so um i first heard of paul when i was in new zealand so i, I qualified here in london in in the uk and as an osteopath and naturopath went out to New Zealand because I hadn't, hadn't done any traveling. And I thought, you know, my mates had all gone off traveling because uh, they had uh, degree courses. Mine was a four-year degree course. So I, I then kind of missed out on traveling with them. So I thought, well, I'll go and work for my first year in Australia or New Zealand. And New Zealand was the easiest place to get into because they had no colleges of osteopathy there. So therefore, if any of the osteopaths are already there needed an, an associate to come in, it was just like a straight yes for a work visa. So it was really easy to get into New Zealand. Plus, you know, it's a lovely place and unusual place to visit. So I was quite up for that. I went out there working in this clinic and there's this poster up on the wall saying this guy, Paul Check, who I'd never heard of, is coming to the local rugby club, just talking about primal patterns. Mm. And, you know, I thought, well, that's quite an interesting concept because I had learned about a concept from a guy at my osteopathic college called Phil Beach, um, which he described as archetypal postures. And he had a very similar way of talking about the body to the way Paul talks about the body. 
But his notion was that we use a certain, uh, like cross-culturally, doesn't matter where you go in the world, if there's no chairs, you'll see the people will use their bodies in a certain way. They'll sit down kneeling on the ground, and that could be a low kneel where the, the, the feet are tucked under, uh, as in out flat, or up on the toes, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a high kneel. Um, then there's sitting cross-legged, sitting long-legged, and there's the deep squat, essentially. And those, or, or potentially combinations of those, are how people rest throughout the world and how we've always rested. So it's this whole evolutionary concept again of, well, how do we rebalance the body after we, you know, have been out on the hunt all day or been been sort of traversing the mountain range to try and find some shelter or whatever? Well, we would have used those rest postures, which inherently none of them are particularly comfortable. They're okay for a few minutes, but after a while you want to shift to a different one. And so what you find is that each of those postures stretches a different muscle group, different fascia, different tendons. And so they're a form of attractor state again. They, they mm. help to rebalance the body. Right. So this was Phil's concept. And then I saw this poster, like I say, which was essentially saying Paul Check talking about his primal pattern system. And there's the squat and there's the lunge and so on and so forth. And I, I thought, oh, that sounds a bit like Phil's concept. I was going to see what he's got to say. So went to his talk and I was impressed, you know, I thought it was a very interesting guy, um, looked at his uh, various, what they were back then was NA, uh, VHS videos. Like, and, uh, and I thought, God, they're quite expensive. And um, so I didn't commit to anything at that point. But when I came back to the UK, I, I was studying a master's degree. And um, basically my goal was to get involved with, um, you know, the premiership soccer here. That was, that was kind of one of my, my goals as an osteopath. Um, and so I was doing this master's degree looking at recurrent hamstring strain in, in professional footballers. And I thought I should look up that Paul Czech guy and see if he's got anything on hamstring strain. Mm -hmm. So so I did. And um, he, he didn't have anything obvious on the website, but I got a response from the Czech Institute to say, well, yeah, you should get the scientific back training uh, videos. So I ordered those and um, they came through and I was studying them. And this was this would have been around the year 2000. Okay. I'm looking at the videos and I'm thinking, holy hell, this, this guy is ahead of the curve because the information he's got in here is what I've been studying for my own research in 1997 when I did my first thesis. But I hadn't been taught a lot of this stuff, you know, about core stability and about muscle slings and about, um, I don't know, yeah, muscle imbalance. Mm -hmm. I haven't taught any of that stuff at osteopathic college. This was stuff I've managed to find myself when I was doing my own research and found it absolutely, well, just really impressive, really helpful clinically, made a lot of sense. Because, see, one of the things with osteopathy that, at least in my training, was that although we were taught a lot about muscles and a lot about how to release muscles and stretch muscles and massage them and so on, the kind of, I guess, the poster child of, of being an osteopath is being able to manipulate the joints right so right. it's all about manipulate this joint and can you manipulate that joint and can you do it in extension or inflection or whatever right mm -hmm. and so this and and in in a way it's one of the toughest skills to learn and there's there's a real art to it so so i i get the kind of high prestige that comes with this focus on the joints but my my line of thought was well how did the joints get tight in the first place right and it's like, well, the only way that a joint can get tight is by it being held tight by a muscle, right? For a long period of time. You know, you don't, you know if you just contract a muscle down, you know, let's contract your bicep and it's not going to make your elbow tight. But if you hold that contraction for a day, well, now you're 
elbow joint is going to get tight. And if you do it for a week, it's going to get tight. Ultimately, it might get to the point where, well, you do a manipulation, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where the osteopath comes in and manipulates the joint because the joint got tight. But a mm-hmm. joint on its own can't just get tight, right? Because mm-hmm. it's passive. It doesn't, it's only, if anything, it's going to get loose because gravity is going to traction it out. Yet we're constantly seeing people with tight joints. So, so, so I'm thinking, well, the muscles are really important here because mm-hmm. they're what can hold a joint tight and create contracture or, or shortening of the joint tissues across time. But then, of course, you've got to think, well, what is it that makes the muscles tight? And so one, one example of that is this muscle imbalance syndrome concept. But then, of course, other things that hold the muscles tight are you know, emotions. Uh, right. Other things that hold the muscles tight are compensation patterns when you've got inhibition of certain muscles, which often happens when, let's say, there's a gut issue or a uterine issue like PMS or IBS or those kinds of things. Well, yeah. now you're the world bloats because of those conditions. So you will engage your obliques or engage your lumbar erectors or your hamstrings to try and stabilize the pelvis better. Mm-hmm. And across time, that will make the joints tight. So, you know, you've got the kind of back to Punjabi's model, the neurology drives the muscles and the muscles drive the joints. Yep. But the other yep. pass focused on manipulating joints and a little bit on the muscles as well. So, so I was kind of like, okay, this muscle imbalance stuff is really good. So I studied that in my first, uh, thesis then i went back and did the master's degree and did a master's thesis and studied it in more depth and developed my thinking more around it mm-hmm. then i got these scientific back training videos through right around the time i'm writing the thesis and i was just blown away because paul's knowledge on that kind of material was ahead of anything i've been able to find in any of the textbooks any of the research papers any of the courses i've been on it was just you know, he had such a better command of the concepts and the ability to work with them and correct them. Mm. So I'm thinking, wow, this guy is ahead of the curve. And then I looked at the date on the videos and they were shot in 1994. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is, like to be able to shoot these videos in 94, he must've been doing it for two, three, four, five years before that. Right. To be by the time he shot it. So I'm just thinking this guy is 10 years ahead of anyone I can find, right? And so the next thing I, I found out is that he's coming to the UK and he's doing a seminar series. And so then I booked onto all of those and, and that was it. I was kind of hooked and, and, and on the program. But part of what attracted me to Paul is that, you know, not only is he this, you know, he's a great presenter, you know, he's, he, he's got a great sense of humor, um, but he is so respectful of everyone that he's learned from and he can reference pretty much everything that he says and you can go and check it out you know when i first heard him speak here in the uk he was talking about meat being healthy for you and i thought well this guy hasn't studied nutrition very much mm. because i know that vegetarianism from my naturopathic training is the healthiest diet right uh, and, and he was saying soy is terrible for you and i thought well he needs to study his nutrition a bit better because soy is a health food and it's really good for you that's that that was from my naturopathic training right so right right but then, but the thing is, is that he said, you know, and you can read about that in Sally Fallon's book, Nourishing Traditions, and you can read about it in Metabolic Typing by Bill Walcott and blah, 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 blah. you know, it gives all these references. And you're like, okay, well, I mean, he's super fit and he's super healthy looking and he's got incredible knowledge. Maybe I should just do him the courtesy of looking at those books. Mm. Look at the books. You're like, oh my gosh, everything I was taught at naturopathic college is wrong. <laughs> Not obviously, but yeah. in that context that was all wrong right right um, 
And it wasn't particularly because it was naturopaths teaching. It was clinical nutritionists and dietitians coming in from the university. Mm-hmm. You know, so anyway, so basically, you know, as, as I did those initial seminars with Paul, he's quite an inspirational guy from, from his athletic perspective as well. You know, he's ripped, as everyone knows, and, and looks after himself incredibly well. But then he was talking about something to do with rigidity in the spine or rigidity in the body or something. And, and he said, you know, and, and if you become too rigid, then the soul feels trapped. Yeah. And when the soul feels trapped, it won't be long until it wants to fly the body. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, at that moment, I thought, oh, wow, this guy is not only, you know, holistic, you know, he, not only is he ahead of the curve with all the biomechanical and conditioning stuff, not only is he holistic in the way he thinks about the nutrition and the emotions and so on, but he's a spiritual guy as well mm-hmm. that looks like an Olympic athlete. This is someone that I'm inspired by and want to be more like and, and want to be able to uh, be able to apply the knowledge in the way that he applies it with, with his mm-hmm. clients and with the people here in, in the room, you know. Um, yeah. that, that, was really, that was really where my journey began with Paul in earnest was when, when he delivered those lectures here in the UK. Okay. Um, and, and it really, you know, filled, you know, it resonated with a lot of the more holistic viewpoints that I had learned through osteopathy and through naturopathy, but also, um, it fills a, a very large gap in my osteopathic training, which is that osteopaths are fantastic at loosening things that are tight. They've got so many, so many great tricks for loosening tight joints and tight fascia and tight muscles and, <laughs> points and trigger points and all that kind of stuff got, got a whole armament of things we can use for that uh. but no good at tightening things that are loose hyper <laughs> mobile and right. so you know and, and then there's the whole conditioning side of it as well and actually getting people not just out of pain but back to you know sports or, or work specific type conditioning you know and, and so the check system just ticked all of the boxes for me and that was why i ended up uh signing up and um yeah you know if you want more on paul's character he's he's a he's a renegade and he's um he's i i think part of the reason that he's been as successful as he has is is partly because the pain that he's been through in his life you know challenges that he has met that he has overcome but also partly because he grew up on a farm and I, i there's a lot of people that are in those upper echelons that, that grew up in some kind of environment like farms where you have to fix stuff yourself. You have to think on your feet. You mm. can't just call out the electrician. Like Paul was saying, he could fix tractors and he could fix hay bale machines and he could fix fences and he yep. could, you know, I mean, it's just like by the time he was about 12, he could do all that stuff, right? Because right. he lived on a farm. So you've got to be thinking on your feet. You know, when the, when the cows get on well, you've got to think about, well, wh- what have they been doing? You know, how can we get this situation remedy before the cows die or the, or whatever because you know you can't always get a vet out at the mm. right time and so i think that environment of, of growing up on a farm and having to be very practical and be able to th- fix things on your own as well as accepting wisdom from other people that Kate could come in and offer advice mm. that that's why i think paul has applied that to the human body and he's done the best job out of anyone i've seen uh, which, you know, you could say, oh, well, that, you know, you're just sounding like a fan. And of course I am a fan. But before I really got into the Czech training, I did continuing professional development courses to such a high degree 
that one of my colleagues said, Matt, you should run a CPD course on which CPD courses to take because <laughs> you do so many of them. And it's like, well, yeah, I was just hungry for it. And I wanted to, to mm. get ahead. And I wanted to become, you know, this kind of osteopath working in, in premiership football here. And, but, but by the time I saw Paul's courses, it was just like, it was night and day, so much more integrated, so much mm. better than anything else I, I could find that it, it just drew me in. So that's, that's why I've uh, been on that journey ever since. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've often thought about that too, Paul. He's got that perfect storm of, like you're saying, he grew up on the farm that taught him to teach, to, to repair things and fix things and problem solve. But it also physically, I think it made him part of what he is because he had to talk hay bales. It was such a physical environment and, and it taught him a lot. And he talks about when he would go to the gym when he was younger and people would challenge him to, you know, it'd be a man, you know, dick measuring contest or whatever. And Paul, you know, Paul's up there on a stability ball doing, you know, dumbbell curls and stuff and the other guys were like wait what like he hit it wasn't just strength it was strength that was applicable in multiple planes of movement under on, on unstable surfaces those types of things that he had but then also kind of alchemically speaking he had this father that was or stepfather who was this man he's talked about openly many times who was very violent mm. and very angry very military in his mindset very unforgiving very um rigid but then he had a, a mom a mother who studied, who was a yogi. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, how, how perfect is that formula yeah. <laughs> to make him this blend, this man who has this capacity to see both sides of that. Mm-hmm. Right. It's yeah, just so interesting. It is um, interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's and, really uh, cool to hear you about your story and, and how yeah. you dug into that and were inspired by that. That's, um, I mean, I have, I have some parallel feelings for sure. That's where I'm, yeah, I'm digging yeah. hard, cool. digging cool. hard too. So excellent excellent yeah i sometimes say you know that obviously obviously paul uh you know i know yeah bit of, bit of heat but but that's the thing about being a trailblazer right you can't you know, if you're not if you're not setting things on fire you're not a trailblazer Absolutely, <laughs> you, right. and so if you want to trailblaze, you're gonna create some smoke and some fire and and so some people don't like that and, and i get that you know I, I know that he's not everyone's cup of tea as we say here in the uk yeah. um but um but you know, if you can see, so I've had colleagues that have gone to his seminars and, and they, they can't see past the spelling mistakes. It's like, yeah, oh, he's wrong. He spelled this wrong. And it's like, well, were you listening to what he said? Right. <laughs> because it's the message. It's not, it's not the fact that he might have spelled something wrong or, you know, used a word slightly out of context. It's classic. On some of his early videos, he, he used to talk about something being analogous to something else. Yeah. And here are a lot of check professional saying oh this is analogous to that and this is analogous to, to that and so like, well, that's not a word right it's analogous is the <laughs> word he just mispronounced it yeah but, but some people can't get beyond that right they're like oh he can't even say analogous i'm mm-hmm. he got what can he teach me and it's like well, you you've got to get beyond your little sort of details you know because mm-hmm. you know devil's in the detail right you, you're stuck there with the devil you need to you need to step out of that and see the message and you know, appreciate what he's offering you here. Um, yeah. But some can't, can't do that. And I think in a way it's a shame because, because he perhaps could have, uh, you know, had a, a bigger impact on, on, on the world if, if uh, you know, there wasn't that kind of behavior, but, um, but it is what it is. And, and yeah. I think uh, ultimately, you know, he's, he's uh, doing a great job and um, yeah, I, I've, I've, I, I still strive to, to be um, more like Paul in terms of, the way he disciplines himself, 
the way he covers so much material in terms of what he reads and, you know, he, draw, he paints his mandalas and he does his Tai Chi mm. and he exercises regularly. You know, he just has so much discipline. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite inspirational, but, but not just discipline to work like a lot of top business people, but discipline to rest, discipline yes. to move and discipline to have spiritual time and self-development time and, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. It's, yeah. um, it is inspiring. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. He's a, he's a polarizing person, but I think for some people yeah. who get hung up on the spelling mistakes or whatever, you got to figure it's, it's a bypass for them to justify not digging into his stuff because he yeah. probably, you know, is challenging to their belief systems. So, yeah, 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 yeah. there we go. Excellent. All right. Well, Matt, <clears throat> thank you so much for taking time again today to come and speak with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, that was good. Was good yeah, one. very good. Uh, and I'm looking forward to working with you in the future. We've got some projects lined up, so I'm excited about that. Definitely, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Be good. Great. Um, last thing is, uh, if you could just tell people where they might find out more about you and and. Yeah, sure. So my, my website's just mattwalden.com. So that's Matt with two T's and Walden with two L's, and it's D E N at the end, so Walden, and it's .com. And uh, pretty much I'm Matt Walden or Matthew Walden on social media, so they'll be able to find me that way. Okay. Uh, if on all the major sort of channels so uh so yeah but that's i would say the website is probably the best place to get hold of me all right great well we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes and um and uh thank you once again for everything i appreciate it that's a pleasure thank you Kobe. i enjoyed it, it okay great. all right bye take bye. care bye attention space monkeys public service announcement really technically it's a disclaimer you already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.